something pretty profound about just letting Scripture stand on its own. Um, I think it's beautiful, and I love to have it read over me. Um, since so many people in this room are, are probably somewhat new here, I'd like to just go ahead and get this out there. What Drew read and everything else in between these covers, we firmly believe that they are the very words of God, that he spoke these words using, um, using men, using, using writers, using prophets, using apostles, using human languages, but he gave us his words. And as such, they are perfect and binding on us. And as such, they demand our obedience. Now, what I'm going to do today um, really doesn't compare to what Luke wrote under the power and the, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. My words are very different than Luke's words. But I hope that I'm able to spend some time with you this morning just gesturing at what Luke has said. And I hope that we're able to come to some conclusions about what God might have us do in response, in obedience to what Luke has put down for us. My name is Ryan Vincent, and I'm, uh, it's one of my joys to, to serve as one of the ministers here at Sunnybrook, and, uh, and it is one of my joys to, to dig into this book. And I hope that we're, we're willing to come to it with a humility and a willingness to submit to its truth over and against any opinion we might bring to the table. Because whatever Ryan says and whatever God says, those are on different planes. And whatever God says in here and whatever you think out there, those, those are in different categories. Perfect, imperfect, <laughs> completely trustworthy, entirely broken. So let's just, let's just look at this and be ready to submit to it in obedience. But as we all know, obedience is easier discussed than done. Um, many times because of certain uh, assumptions we make. When it comes to a topic that is, um, that is difficult or, or we, we're not that interested in it or we don't altogether agree with it, sometimes our assumptions about said topic will, will get us into trouble. I see this in my kids. Um, a common thing you'll hear at the dinner table at my house is I will tell my kids to finish. We don't, we're not like a clean your plate kind of family, but we are a do what dad says kind of family. So even if what I say is irrational, it is binding. And, and what I tell them, I tell my son, you have to finish your cucumber slices before you can get down from the table. And genius that he is, his response is, well, how many slices does my sister have to have? And I just tell him, oh, that's a bad question. That is an irrelevant question. It has nothing to do with what I've just told you to do. You see, what he assumes is that I'm interested in equality between the five and the three-year-old worlds, and he assumes that I'm interested in being fair. I'm not interested in being fair. I'm interested in parenting him. They're not the same thing. <laughs> His assumptions get him into trouble. And we look at a five-year-old and we think, oh, that's silly, but you and I do the same thing. We make assumptions, especially find moments of crisis or unexpected changes in the plan, and you'll see that our assumptions betray our, our sometimes inability to think properly. I'll get a phone call. She's lost her job, which is shocking to me because I assumed she was just a wonderful employee because we're good friends. 
Or someone will, will be frustrated with a family out in the lobby that they don't want to connect and they just seem aloof and distant and kind of cold. Or I'll get that other phone call that says, I can't believe he left her and the kids. Their marriage looked wonderful. You see, what I assumed is that she's a great employee, and I, and I assumed that, that they just really don't like anybody, and I assumed that they had a wonderful marriage, but my assumptions were, were clouding my judgment when in reality she's a terrible employee, kind of self-serving and lazy, and they should have fired her long ago, and, and they, they're just really distant because, quite honestly, they've had a really hard year, and there's been some trauma and some pain, and, and we're assuming that things are fine at home, and they just don't like us, but really they're just hurting, and, and I assume that their marriage is fine, when in reality, for 10 years, they've just focused on their kids at the expense of their marriage. You see how my assumptions send me down the wrong path. We'll see that today as we, we study what the disciples are doing, what Jesus is asking them to do going forward, and how they're responding to him. They have assumptions, and, and, and it's sending them a little bit in the wrong direction, and Jesus is just going to gently, as he does, Correct that. Set them on the proper course. Now, I think it's going to be helpful to just get it out there. What, what Drew just read, Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 11. I'm just going to tell you what Luke is trying to say. And like the overarching idea of this message, if we can get it up here, it is simply this. The church has been commissioned to give witness by the power of the Holy Spirit, and that qualification is terribly important, by the power of the Holy Spirit to the kingdom of God. That's what Luke wants us to get from this great ascension story today. The church has been commissioned to give witness. How? By the power of the Holy Spirit. To what? To the kingdom of God. And our job is to engage this ancient text, 2,000 years old, and find what it might have to bear on our lives today. To find what it looks like to, to respond to that in obedience in Stillwater, Oklahoma in 2018. And you're in our jobs, at home, in church, on campus. What does this have to do with our lives now? That's our job this morning. And I think that if we ask three simple questions, we can get somewhere. And the three questions we're going to deal with today, they're in your bulletin, are this. Um, what story are we in? What story are, are, are we playing a part of? And inside that story, what kind of kingdom have we joined? If you're a follower of Jesus, you've sworn an allegiance to someone who calls himself a king, therefore you're part of a kingdom. So what kingdom have we joined? What's it like? And if we know the story and if we understand the kingdom, then maybe we can answer the third question, is what kind of witnesses are we called to be? I think we'll quickly find out that this is not just instructions to a group of men in the ancient world, but that this is, these are instructions that kind of ripple forward toward us. What story are we in? What kind of kingdom have we joined? And what kind of witnesses are we supposed to be? That's what we'll deal with this morning. So let's just, let's just jump right in. What story are we in? I don't think that it's too difficult to read through the book of Acts and to come to the conclusion that that story is our story. Church history is my history. What happened in, on this continent in the, the, the 1700s, the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, that's my history. I wasn't there, but that's my history. And thus, I'm part of that story. Same thing with the church. We all know that. But 
in Acts, we have kind of the quintessential beginnings of the church history. And if we can find what it is that led to the beginning of this institution called the church, then I think we can really understand what our job is today. And, and, and we learned last week that Acts is part two of a two-part work. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, and then Acts, they're very similar in length. It literally is just part two of the same story. And in the Gospel of Luke, he chronicles the, the, the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. And then he picks it up in Acts, and here we have the story of the ascension and the commissioning of the church to go in and do the work and, and go out towards, it ends in Rome. Starts way back here in Nazareth and Galilee, goes toward Rome. Luke to Acts. Now these books, this, is, this will help us understand the, the story. These books are, are two very interesting books in the sense that they're different than the other ones because they are arranged by geography. They have a geographical arrangement. Luke begins in like the rural backwaters, in, in Nazareth and in Galilee, in kind of the country folk. And then it moves toward Jerusalem. In fact, it has this almost relentless beeline toward Jerusalem. Luke chapters 9 through 19, Jesus is just chronicling Jesus' trip towards Jerusalem. Which kind of bothered his disciples at times because, okay, we are not from Jerusalem, Jesus. People there don't like us. They've made it quite clear they're going to deal with us in some sense. It's getting more dangerous the closer we get there. But it says in Luke chapter 9 that Jesus set his face like flint. He was resolved to get to Jerusalem. And, and when opposition increases and when things get more and more dangerous, when it becomes abundantly clear what the end of this is going to look like, he doesn't flinch. He just keeps going toward Jerusalem. Why? Because he's, he's falling in line with God's mission for him to go and to be tried under the, the Roman government and to be killed, executed, and murdered for the sins of humanity. And, and that's exactly what happens. It starts way out in the country, moves toward Jerusalem, and then the whole gospel terminates in Jerusalem. Well, Acts is exactly the opposite. Starts in Jerusalem and then ripples out away from it. The, the movement, the, the structure that Luke has put together, it's undeniable that geography matters to him. And the city of Jerusalem is kind of the apex of it all. What's so special about Jerusalem? A room full of people like us, good Gentile folk, we, we don't really get the same sense that Jerusalem is as important in God's overarching story. I've never been there. Many of you have. I've never been to Jerusalem. I hope that one day when I go, I hope to be able to go maybe at some point next year that I'll, I'll get a greater sense of what this city's all about. But for us, I mean, it's, it's a historically relevant city, sure. It gets a lot of airtime in the scriptures, fine. But its relation to God's plan of salvation, I don't know that any of us would really see that. To us, it's kind of indifferent toward this city. What's the big deal about Jerusalem, Luke? Well, in the Old Testament, they think differently about this city. They think quite differently, actually. There's a deep reverence for this city. It's almost like it's this cherished jewel of the nation of Israel. There's this expectation that things are going to get wild there and it's going to be incredible. There's something about Jerusalem in the Hebrew mind, in the Israelite mind of the Old Testament, in the very words of the prophets themselves that says there's something special here. 
And I think if we can, can locate what it is they're, they're really obsessed with about this city, we can understand the church's story better. So we don't have time. Um, but I, I do have a couple of passages that I think will help uh, illuminate the, the Old Testament's understanding of, of why the city was so important. Uh, I know that many of you are using your ESV journal Bibles. Awesome. Problem is you don't have your Old Testaments in there, but that's okay. We got them on the screen, so just jot it down. Um, here's what I want to do. I want to take us through and, and see what the Old Testament helps us understand about Jerusalem, starting in Psalm 14. Psalm 14, written by King David long, long ago. This is a psalm. It begins with uh, this, this well-known line, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And in many ways, David is lamenting the depravity of the world around him. He's frustrated that things aren't going as God has intended. He's frustrated that God isn't getting the recognition that he deserves. But as David's psalms tend to, to end up, there is a hopeful, redemptive side to the way that the psalm concludes. So in verse 7 of Psalm 14, David says this. He says, oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion, another name for Jerusalem. His hope here is that salvation would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice and let Israel be glad. David has some sort of expectation here connected to the location there. Joel 2. We're going to read this passage in a couple of weeks as Peter quotes it in his sermon on Pentecost, but it's helpful right now. Joel 2, verses 30 through 32. The prophet Joel says this, And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. This is known as apocalyptic imagery. It's very, um, it's very uh, figurative. It's, it's very um, image-driven. And, and there's, it's supposed to be colorful and intense on purpose. And he says, there's going to be something wild happen. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So he's anticipating the Lord returning. The Lord coming and setting things right. After all, think through your Israelite history. God called us out of Ur of the Chaldeans, our father Abraham, and established us in his promised land. And things were going well for a time, but then the nation split. The north's conquered by Assyria, the south by Babylon. We've been in this period of divine pruning for what seem like centuries. And you have this agony that says, God, come set it all right. And there is this pregnant hope in the prophetic books that says he will. And it'll look like this. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion, there's that word again, and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Now, there are many other places where we, we get a picture of God's final reckoning and putting everything back together happening in Jerusalem, happening in that holy city. This was the mindset. This is what they hoped for. This is what they ached for. Like the Gospel of Luke, it seems like the Old Testament is just marching toward Jerusalem. That's where it will all culminate. But it won't stay there. In Isaiah 25, 
prophet Isaiah tells us what God will do when he finally, as Isaiah says, swallows up death forever. On this mountain, referring to Jerusalem, Isaiah says, on this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. He says, on, the, on this mountain, in Jerusalem, God is going to throw a banquet. He's going to have this celebration in the end. And who's it going to include? All people, okay? Like Luke, the Old Testament is moving toward Jerusalem. It's just that's where salvation is going to happen, and then it's going to turn and go out from there. Salvation will happen in Jerusalem, and then it will turn and be offered to the nations. It says, all peoples, a feast of rich food. Jump down to verse 7. And he will swallow up on this mountain, that is Jerusalem, the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Like Luke, everything is moving toward Jerusalem, and like Acts, it's going to explode outward when God finally comes in the fullness of his kingdom. We're starting to get a picture of how the story works. How the story works. One more passage out of Isaiah, the beginning of one of those famous servant songs, Isaiah 42, just first one. It says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold by my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice not to Israel but to the nations. So what we see is this picture of Israel hoping for God to come and do something special in Jerusalem, and of course he would do that. But then it's going to go outward, and there's this servant, whoever this is, that is supposed to have something to do with it. Now, if you look through the Old Testament at what Israel was expected to do, to be set apart, to be distinct from this world, to represent God to this world, to bear the very character of God to this world, they just weren't very good at it. Open up your Gospels. Jesus does exactly that perfectly. Jesus comes and embodies what Israel was intended to be. Jesus is the servant. This helps us understand what it is that we need to do because if Jesus is continuing Israel's role from the Old Testament and then when he departs, he commissions his disciples to do something, I wonder if it's follow his work, do the work that he has already begun and do it his way. You see, we have to go back in order to understand what we're doing now. Like, if I were to tell you a story of um, a lion We'll call him Simba, and, uh, and a, uh, a meerkat and a, and a warthog. We'll call him Timon and Pumbaa. And I talked about how the, this strange friendship exists out in the, the jungles of Africa, and they're just content singing nonsensical songs and running around eating bugs. You would say, That's, that doesn't sound like, like in and of itself a very good movie. Well, I'd say, well, it doesn't make sense. He should eat these animals, but he doesn't. Oh, okay, we need the rest of the story. I could tell you a story of a, a, a young woman and another lion, and this time we'll throw in a, a, a scarecrow and a tin man, and they're talking to a strange man behind a curtain, and they're frustrated that he can't fix their problems. 
you would say, that sounds like in and of itself a rather dull movie. But if I gave you all the context of how she meets these people and all the expectations of what this wizard is supposed to be able to do, you would understand their disappointment. But when I just show you that one little scene, chapter 35 in a 50-chapter book, you'd say, that doesn't make sense. I need all of the backstory. Likewise, we get into trouble when we try to live life as the church without knowing all the backstory without understanding how things have been going from this point forward because if truth be told, I need to know how that's working so that I can play my role and step in. And that's what Jesus is helping us see in this account in, in Acts 1. Acts is part of the overarching story. And Jesus is telling them exactly what the next chapter is going to look like. He says in Acts 1, starting in verse 4, while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. Hmm. But to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Have you ever wondered why he asked them to stay in Jerusalem? Disciples aren't from Jerusalem. Jerusalem's not a safe place for them. Why didn't he just meet them in Galilee and, and ascend to the Father from there? Maybe because his plan of salvation is centering on that city. And then when it does, next week, next couple of weeks, we'll see the Holy Spirit will come and it will burst out the other direction, just like it played out in the Old Testament. That's what those promised. That's what's happening. And if you're a good Jew, you have a couple of things that are, that are really messing with your head. Yeah. He said, stay in the city. Why? Okay, I guess we'll stay here. Jesus, we're trusting you. And then he said, like, the, the, the Spirit will come. The promise of the Spirit. To my mind, I am, if I'm an average Jewish guy 2,000 years ago, hard to believe, but if I was an average Jewish guy 2,000 years ago, I would think something wild is about to happen. And over the coming days and weeks, I think I would start to put it together that we are stepping into the prophecies from the Old Testament, and it's happening. It's happening. What Isaiah hoped for, what Joel hoped for, what David prophesied about in this beautiful, poetic way, it's happening. Salvation has come to Zion, and it is now turning to go out to all peoples. The church, guys, has been commissioned. If Jesus was fulfilling what Israel is intended to do, the church is to step in and do Jesus' work after he's left by his power, of course, but we're to do Jesus' work, and we have to know that. We are not here at Sunnybrook Christian Church this morning to do Sunnybrook's work or to go after Sunnybrook's agenda. The elders at this church are not consumed with Sunnybrook. Jim, the other pastor of this church, not consumed with Sunnybrook. Please don't be consumed with Sunnybrook. We must, as a church, if we're to step into the story, be consumed with Jesus' work. And we have to do his work in his way. He's going to tell us how that works. He's going to tell us how that plays out whenever we ask the following question. Okay, well, if we're in the story with everybody... If there was Israel and then Jesus and then the church and we are the church and we're in this thread together, then what kind of kingdom have we joined? What does it look like to be in this story? Well, they ask some questions here. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Those are normal questions to ask given what they've just experienced. Sometimes I think that we grow a little um, 
desensitized to just how wild it would have been to be alive at this point in time talking to Jesus. A guy who 40 days ago was dead. We sometimes move too quickly past that. They have spent 40 days hanging out with someone who died, was put in the ground, and is now alive again. That would have, okay, something strange is going on here, Jesus. Add to that, as if the resurrection is not miraculous enough, add to that the fact that they truly believed he was the Messiah. Again, put on your, your Israelite hat for a second. If I'm longing for God to set the kingdom in motion, a couple of things that I'm looking for is the coming of his Messiah and God putting everything back together in the end with the general resurrection from the dead. I found the Messiah, and he just resurrected from the dead. It makes all the sense in the world that the kingdom should come bursting forth out of Jerusalem. Their question isn't crazy. Is it now, Jesus? Add to that the fact that, as we learned last week from the first three verses of Acts, Jesus has spent this whole time teaching them about the kingdom of God. The Messiah is here. He resurrected from the dead. He won't stop talking about the kingdom of God. Maybe the kingdom of God is here. Or maybe it is very, very nearby. And then when he starts talking about the sending of the Holy Spirit, that's another big prophetic trigger. That's something else God promised would happen in the end. It's finally coming to bear. Is the kingdom here, Jesus? We've done three years of ministry with you, Jesus. We've seen you do all sorts of crazy things. It was awesome. We even stuck around whenever you got killed. That was crazy. But then you came back, and that's awesome. And we've been with you for 40 days. You've been talking about the kingdom. Is it now? Is it now, Jesus? It's not an inappropriate question. Jesus answers them like this in verse 7. It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, Oftentimes, the only verse we fixate on in this particular passage. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Okay. This is something of a rebuke, but it's not quite so stern as sometimes we think. We'll go to this passage and we'll say, see, it's pointless to, to predict the future. Jesus said, don't even try. And in some sense, that's true. But Jesus is also not just rebuking them. He's explaining the kingdom to them. He's explaining what it's going to look like. First of all, it's coming. In fact, it's already here. See, their assumptions would be holding them back. Their assumptions might be conditioned by the kingdom of David. Their assumptions might be conditioned by um, life under the rule of the Assyrian empires, or the Babylonian empires, or the Medo-Persian empires, or various other empires. They ask this question in the long shadow of the Roman Empire, and they're interested in, will your kingdom come now? Assuming that it has a great political component to it. Jesus just kind of gently rebukes that, gently corrects that, and says, actually, it's going to be, it's not as though it doesn't have any physical components to it. it doesn't, it's not as though it doesn't have anything to do with politics, but it is, it is first and foremost spiritual in nature. It is a spiritual kingdom. 
when the Holy Spirit comes, when the Holy Spirit comes, things will start to take place. But it's not just that. Look at where it goes. You'll be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem. Sounds good. That's where this is supposed to happen, Jesus. And in Judea. Okay, that's great. That's our countrymen. In Samaria. Okay. And the ends of the earth. Jerusalem makes sense. Judea makes sense. Samaria, they can't stand them. The ends of the earth, I thought we were just, I thought we were just talking about how frustrating the Roman Empire is. Why are we taking it to the end of that empire? Why would God want to save like the Old Testament things move toward Jerusalem and then they turn and go out? And this is scandalous, but it is Jesus' program of salvation. So not only is it spiritual in nature, it's also international in membership. And not only that, but to the end of the earth, to Peter's mind, that might have been Rome. But here we are, way past Rome. And the kingdom is still working itself out. It is still going forth. It's taken 2,000 years thus far. Much more, if you want to date it as starting way back in the Old Testament, it is spiritual in nature, it is international in membership, and it is very gradual in its expansion. But sometimes, like the disciples, we would rather have it to be political in nature. We'd, we really only like to care about me and mine, those that are close to me, and I'm not really that interested in those people over there. And I want it to happen now. I want it to be finished, but it is spiritual, international, and gradual. That's the kind of kingdom we're in. And so we have to think like spiritual people. We have to care about others. And we have to do all of this with a holy patience that says that the God who created time itself understands how this will play out. And I don't need him to rush it. And I don't need him to take my advice. I just need to be patient. To have a deep, holy patience that trusts him. So if we know the story, we're in this big story with Israel and Jesus and the church, and if we know the kingdom, spiritual, international, and gradual, as citizens of that kingdom, what does it look like to bear witness to the kingdom? What does it look like to bear witness to the gospel, to the God we know and love and serve? What kind of witnesses must we be? It's complicated, I guess. But we have to deal with this ascension business. Why is it there? No other gospel writers included it, by the way. Matthew did not tell us about the ascension. Mark did not. Luke did not. Or, sorry, John did not. Luke is the only one. Gives us a narrative account of the ascension. And, he, and it's all in this context of Jesus commissioning his church to do something. And the imagery here is incredibly striking. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Now, when you come to striking image in Scripture, and sometimes overly specific image in Scripture, it can be helpful to see, if, are, are we borrowing these things from anywhere else? There's a great vision in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7. The prophet, speaking of what God is going to do at some point in the future to set all things right, 
He's talking about this triumphant God that he serves. And he says this in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. The prophet says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, a common title Jesus used for himself in the Gospels. And he came to the Ancient of Days, one of my favorite names for God, and was presented before him. And to him, to the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. You'll forgive me if I have a nagging sense that this vision is playing out in Acts 1 as Jesus takes the throne in his ascension. As the Son of Man returns to the Ancient of Days behind a cloud and sits down triumphant, in power, in authority. And it's like at that very moment Everything that you and I do, everything that exists in the cosmos must reckon with that king. Not only is the kingdom spiritual, not only is it international, and not only is it gradual, it is cosmic. And it reigns and rules over all things. Everything we do must deal with that. And everything we do must, must happen in response to that king. That son of man, presented before the ancient of days, who now rules with perfect authority. What kind of witnesses should we be? We should be ones that can recognize who it is we serve. You see, when Jesus left, he commissioned his followers to speak on his behalf to the ends of the earth. He sealed them with the Holy Spirit. We'll see this play out in a couple of weeks. But he's telling them, you have been certified. You have your diploma. You have the seal of approval. You have a badge. You've been given the authority to speak on my behalf, to speak on behalf of my kingdom. You are now qualified to serve as my witnesses. And then a great question for you and I to ask ourselves today is do we feel qualified to serve as Jesus' witnesses? And if not, why? Um, sometimes we just simply feel unqualified because of our behavior. Um, sometimes I look at the kingdom and the task that's attached to it to, to give witness to it and to expand it and to do, do what God has called me to do with respect to that kingdom. I look at that and I think, ah, uh, maybe tomorrow. <laughs> it can wait. Or it's not that important. I mean, I live in a neighborhood with, and I don't even know if I'm keeping track properly, with at least 10 ordained ministers I don't know who I'm supposed to share the gospel with in my neighborhood. I think we've kind of covered it. But of course we all know that that can't possibly be true. But it, it betrays a mentality that many of us have. You know, I know and love the Lord. My wife knows and loves the Lord. 
I, I got good feelings about where my kids are going to end up. I think we're kind of good. I've covered the necessary basis for me. I've, I, I've dealt with me and mine. And what I've actually done is I've abdicated my responsibility to bear witness to the world. You see, I just got really concerned with my little Jerusalem. And I didn't think about Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. I grew comfortable. Maybe that's not you. Maybe, um, maybe you are very concerned with the kingdom's advancement. Maybe you're so concerned with it that it's, you will take any means to get to that end. Maybe you are, you are willing to do Christ's work the world's way. Maybe you look at politics and think, well, if we just get X in office, or if we can just stack the Supreme Court in our favor, or maybe we just need so-and-so as a mayor, or so-and-so as the president of my kid's school, we'll be fine. Maybe that's not you. Maybe you look at education as a solution. Maybe if we could just teach people, get them more information, that would be great, right? Nelson Mandela put it like this, he said, Education is the greatest weapon you can use to change the world. Welcome back, OSU students. But that is other nonsense. It is absolute nonsense. It can't possibly be the greatest weapon that we can use to change the world when we have the power of the Holy Spirit sitting right here, staring us in the face. We get, our assumptions just get us off track. I don't have to do anything. Or we need to get so-and-so in the office. Or we need to teach more. Come to one of Ryan's Bible studies. I'll fill your head with information. That'll fix it. No, it won't. It won't. French theologian named Suzanne de Dietrich said it like this, and I think this is really helpful to understand what witnessing in the church looks like. She said, witnessing power of the church will depend to a great extent on her being the church, namely a community where God is at work, where a new quality of life is manifesting itself, where briefly the fruits of the Spirit are shown in word and deed. Notice in that entire quote, who gets the credit for everything happening? Maybe we need to hear this because maybe the first two options, you're going to either abdicate your responsibility or you're going to go about your responsibilities in a worldly way. Maybe that's not you. Maybe, maybe you're just frozen and you don't know what to do and you don't know how to give witness and you're scared to say the wrong thing because you'll lead someone astray and you just, you just kind of seize up. I'd like to take a little bit of a burden off your shoulders because it's really not up to you. And it is a quiet, sweet-looking arrogance that comes to that point that says, I can't do this because what if I get it wrong? No one was asking you to do it out of your own abilities. We need to go back to the text and see what it is we're called to do here. Our bad assumptions... They don't make us qualified witnesses. They actually make us unqualified to witness. And here is a really helpful way to get your mind around this. Think back to your own conversion. And go over in your mind how that took place. For me, it was someone sharing with me the scriptures, specifically the Gospel of John. That's how I came to faith. Through reading the Gospel of John. Now, she 
wasn't abdicating. She thought, okay, I've got to have an awkward conversation with this guy and share with him some, some truths that, you know, implies that he has something to learn and has some, something to go toward, namely Jesus. And so I, that's going to be weird, but I, I'm going to do that. I'm going to have that awkward conversation. She thought that, okay? So she wasn't abdicating. But I tell you, like, my conversion had nothing to do with who was in the White House. Not a thing to do with Supreme Courts or Congresses. It had nothing to do with any of that. It had nothing to do with any OSU ethics course that was teaching me to be moral. And it had not one thing to do with this woman's ability to reason and convince. It was the power of the Spirit pouring off the pages of John's gospel that broke me. None of those worldly things. And we need to keep that in mind. And can we keep that in mind? We'll start to do Christ's work in Christ's power. I want to bring this back up. This is what Luke said this book is about. It's been commissioned to give witness by the power of the Holy Spirit to the kingdom of God. That underlined phrase is key, and we have to keep that in mind. Sure, serving as qualified witnesses does look like evangelism. We really can't get around that. You know, it also looks like gathering a biblical community. That gives witness to the kingdom. It looks like growing in our sanctification and in our maturity. That gives witness to the kingdom. In other words, it looks like going, gathering, and growing. That gives witness to the kingdom. Listen to the prayers of children, and you'll hear witness to the kingdom in such wonderfully childish ways. When I have Canyon Ebert over at my house, and I ask that little boy to pray, it can take a while because he prays for every single person that he is aware of by name. And he's very thankful for them. And at times I'm like, come on, I'm hungry. But at other times I'm like, this kid is showing me something beautiful about how he knows that God loves those people and he should thank God for those people. Last night at dinner, my son thanked God for creating swimming pools. There's something beautiful about the raw honesty of a little kid that trusts that God loves them and does incredible things to him. He is giving witness to God in that moment. And in my mind, I'm like, why would you pray for a swimming pool? But then I'm like, I'm really glad you prayed for swimming pools because God does love you and he does love recreation and play and having fun. He, he's saying something about God right there. He's giving witness. And he's not trying to convert me. That'd be funny. But he is, he is just giving testimony. And that's how you and I can give witness. In fact, there are other ways. I'm going to dismiss our servers to go get the communion and start passing out the bread and the cup. And I'm going to invite the band to come back up. One of the ways that you and I give witness is when we gather together like this. In a moment, we're actually going to sing some songs together that make much of God's grace. And another one that will make much of God's name. When we sing like that, we aren't necessarily offering anything to God that he doesn't already have. He's complete. He doesn't need it. But he is engaging with us as we sing praises to him and we are giving witness to his name. And likewise... This gives witness to him. As they pass the elements out, I'm going to ask that if you know and love and follow Jesus, 
take the bread and the cup and hold it. I want to, I want to take it as a family. And if you, if you don't yet know and love Jesus, if you haven't yet sworn your allegiance to the king of this kingdom that we're a part of, just let it pass. And I would ask that you just observe, even wonder what's going on here. When we join together with Christ at the table, it is an act of giving witness. The Apostle Paul actually calls it an act of proclamation. And when we declare, as he says, the victorious death of our Savior, remembering his broken body and his blood spilt for us, we are people qualified because of the Spirit in us giving witness to that cosmic king that sits next to the ancient of days. Jesus' last words in the Gospel of Matthew are this. It's very similar commissioning to what we have in Acts 1. Jesus told his followers, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Daniel 7. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Acts 1.8. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And I love this. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Brothers and sisters, when we take this meal together, he's with us. He's empowered us by giving us himself to speak about him and to live in light of his reign. Take the bread and celebrate the broken body of your Savior. Take the cup and celebrate the blood poured out for you and I. As the servers return, the offering plates, let me challenge you that your generosity to the kingdom is yet one more example of a way to bear witness to the goodness of the king that runs that kingdom. And so I would ask you to consider it a great joy to give of your overflow of treasure and to trust the Lord to work out his things in his kingdom on his timing.